Hello and welcome to the stunning history of today. I am Tess. And I am Steph. Okay, well I think we're going to get just right into it this week. I do want to say really quickly before we start, this is very intense. It's quite distressing. So I just wanted to give you a bit of warning if you don't know the story is kind of gruesome in nature and it's very upsetting so i just thought i would flag that before we even start just in case and hopefully it's not too traumatizing okay so let's do this on this day july 23rd 1982 we're going back 40 years ago a fatal accident occurs on the set of twilight zone the movie oh do we know about this i really I really thought you were going to say Twilight, and I was just like, Twilight, is that old? <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> I, no, I, I heard Twilight, and obviously everybody in our generation, their brain goes immediately to Twilight. Yes, of course. But yes. I, I still remember Twilight Zone, like that weird yes. horror channel thing yes. that used to pop up. Yeah. T. Have you heard about this accident? It's quite a well-known movie set accident. No, I don't know. Oh, let's get into the day then. <laughs> Your face. <laughs> okay. Well, I'll give you some context and I'll talk a bit about the Twilight Zone because I know some people probably have never heard of her. Um, so let's talk a bit about that. So the Twilight Zone is an American media franchise based on the anthology television series created by Rod Serling. And the episodes are in various genres, including fantasy, sci-fi, absurdism, dystopian fiction, suspense, horror, supernatural drama, black comedy, and psychological thriller, often often concluding with a macabre or unexpected twist, and usually with a moral. Mm. <laughs> a popular and critical success, it introduced many Americans to common science fiction and fantasy tropes. The first series, shot entirely in black and white, ran on CBS for five seasons from 1959 to 1964. This is back in the sixties. So, there were four series. So the first one was in the fifty sixties that we just talked about. It had five seasons and a hundred and fifty six episodes. The second series was in the eighties that had three seasons. The third series was in the early two thousands with only one season. And the most recent is actually from 2019, 2020 and it had two seasons and it had uh, Jordan Peele in it. Oh. Tea. <laughs> oh. Yeah. So. I didn't see that coming. I mean, maybe maybe we should have because it's Jordan Peele. And to be fair, he does like. I think he was the narrator. Pretty extensive thing. Um, because okay. there's like someone who comes in and narrates and does the spiel about the Twilight Zone. And like... <laughs> mm. okay. I've actually have never seen any of these at all, which I'm low-key sad about because I would love to watch them, but I don't know how to watch them. I can't find them. I think I've seen one, and that was the early 2000 section. Oh, too. Because the moment, the moment you said it, there's this episode that comes back to me, and it was about this plane that entered a different dimension with some people oh, on it. Such. I don't remember what happened in the middle, but in order to get back to like this reality everybody has to be asleep on the plane otherwise if you're still oh, awake then you I think die I, I think i know about that one too actually you do know I that think one I right i do know of it yeah yeah because like they entered and the ones that are the main characters like they were all asleep on the plane and they woke up and they're like what's going on like where is everybody because everybody else was still awake when they entered that dimension and then somebody had to sacrifice themselves but then a dude took over and was like no you go to sleep. I'll fly this plane. And I was like, all right, then. <laughs> it's I, nice knowing you, bro. I don't think I've seen it, but I know that story. So I must have seen it. <laughs> like the, you must have seen it. hundred yeah. percent. I feel like it's a popular one. If you've seen it. Oh, like, such. I don't know. It's a, it's a weird one, but it's stuck with me. I don't remember anything else. Just that one oh, episode. Yeah, there you go. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Surprising myself. So, aside from the TV series, there was a film, which is one we're talking about today, released in 1983, and also a telefilm in 1994, which I believe was um, it's like a, a, a look at all the lost footage or lost episodes that were never aired from the original series. See you. Twilight Zone's writers frequently used sci-fi as a vehicle for social comment as networks and sponsors who censored con controversial material from live dramas were less concerned with seemingly 
innocuous fantasy and sci-fi stories. Frequent themes on The Twilight Zone included nuclear war, McCarthyism, and mass hysteria, subjects that were avoided on less serious primetime television. So they weren't afraid to go there. All the crazy stuff. (laughs) (laughs) So, each episode presents a standalone story in which characters find themselves dealing with often disturbing or unusual events, an experience described as entering the Twilight Zone, often with a surprise ending and a moral. I'm sorry, I can't not say it that way. That's totally fair. Twilight Zone. No way to say it like that, yeah. (laughs) Oh my gosh. So, despite his esteem in the writing community, Serling found the series difficult to sell. Few critics felt that science fiction could transcend empty escapism and enter the realm of adult drama. I I think it's interesting, isn't it? Something that's different, unusual. I mean, they they should be open-minded too. I can understand why they were like, no one's gonna like this, but how are you how are you gonna know if you don't give it a go? Like that's what a test audience is for, no? TT. In a September twenty second, nineteen fifty nine interview with Serling, Mike Wallace asked a question illustrative of the times. This is the quote. You're going to be, obviously, working so hard on the Twilight Zone that, in essence, for the time being and for the, for the foreseeable future, you've given up on writing anything important for television, right? That's just rude. That's a bit rude. That is rude. Leave him alone. That's rude. <laughs> He's just trying to live his dream. He just wants to write what he him. wants and do something interesting. Beast. Exactly. Despite the sentiment of some, the series went on to become one of the most successful ever, two, uh, winning two Emmys and a Golden Globe for the original 50s series, 60s series. See you. I'm extending this because I'm a biz, I'm a piece, and I'm sorry in advance, but a biz I have to talk about Disney because there's an attraction in the Disney parks based on the Twilight Zone. And so I figured if you haven't seen the series and you still don't fully understand what I'm trying to convey because I can't English and I'm a horrible communicator, (laughs) then maybe the context of the Twilight Zone Tower of Terror will help. So... Or maybe I just wanted an excuse to talk about Disney, but you know. Oh, I've never, I've obviously never been to Disneyland. I want to see what this ride looks like. This Tower of Terror Tower thing. Tower of Terror. It's the big droppy one and I hate it. <laughs> oh, is that? Oh, it, I've seen this Hollywood Tower thingy before. I thought it was just like a rundown hotel. Tea, it's the ride. Oh, it looks cool though. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> Well, let me explain the Twilight Zone attraction to you. So, it inspired... (laughs) I'm not sorry. You have to deal with this. The series also inspired a famous theme park attraction, the Tower of Terror. So, it is a theme park attraction based on the original Twilight Zone series from the 60s. And it was designed by Walt Disney Imagineering. And it's currently present at Disney's Hollywood Studios in Orlando, Walt Disney Studios Park in Paris and Tokyo Disney Sea in Japan. A fourth attraction at California Adventure, which is in Disneyland in California, obviously, <laughs> operated from 2004 to 2017 before it was rethemed to Guardians of the Galaxy Mission Breakout, which mm. I wasn't that happy about and I wrote it and I don't like it. So. <laughs> I mean, they could have just put it somewhere else, but sure. Let's I just the whole don't. Ride. I firstly don't like this ride because of the motion. It's a, it's a drop one. And that mm-hmm. feeling, I cannot do. Like, I feel like I'm going to die. And, <laughs> and I've done it twice and I'm never doing it again. And then I was, I went on the Guardians one when it like first changed. And I didn't like it because in the original, it would like, you would get to the top and then you would drop. And then you'd kind of stop and start again. But with the Guardians one, you'd stop and watch like scenes, but you'd be continuously bobbing before you drop again. And I couldn't do that. I I was like extra. I couldn't do that. Mm -mm. Yeah, no, I was like, Mm -mm. I can barely do the drop. Why are you making me sit and bob here for like a minute? (laughs) I can't do this. The attraction in Japan is the only one not themed to the Twilight Zone due to cultural differences and constraints in licensing for the Oriental Land Company, which is the owner and operator of the park. 
The ride also served as the inspiration for the 1997 TV film Tower of Terror, which bears no connection to the attraction or the Twilight Zone. So I'm going to take you through because I, I don't I mean, like, because I'm a beast. I'm going to take you through the ride. <laughs> so in um, in the American and European versions of the attraction, guests make their way to the rundown Hollywood Tower Hotel through the front gate to enter the queue through overgrown gardens and then enter the hotel lobby. So it's real rundown, real shabby. Once in the lobby, guests are ushered to the hotel library, which houses the hotel's collection of books and antiques. With the crash of thunder and lightning, the power in the library goes out, except for a television set which crackles into life and plays the opening sequence from the fourth and fifth seasons of The Twilight Zone, hosted by Rod Serling, and this is the ones from the 60s. The episode depicts the events of a stormy night in Hollywood, 1939, where a lightning bolt strikes the tower and causes five people, a celebrity couple, a child star, her nanny, and a hotel bellhop to vanish from the elevator, along with an entire wing of the building. So Rod Serling tell, then tells guests that they'll be stepping in a maintenance service elevator to become the stars of an episode of The Twilight Zone. The television then turns off and then guests are directed through to the boiler room to board the elevator. So after guests are loaded into the elevator, the doors close, the lights are dim and the elevator starts to ascend. And Rod Serling's voice greets passengers to a most uncommon elevator about to ascend into your very own episode of The Twilight Zone. <laughs> <laughs> so the elevator stops and doors open to reveal a dimly lit hotel corridor with a single window at the end the ghosts of the five missing passengers appear beckoning the guests to join them before disappearing in a burst of electricity the corridor fades to darkness and transforms into a field of stars with the window intact until it floats forward and morphs into the window from the season 5 opening sequence and then it breaks uh, so the Elevator doors close and the car continues to ascend, once more opening its doors to a maintenance room. Uh, the elevator car exits from the lift shaft horizontally into the room, which slowly fades into darkness as it turns into the fifth dimension, an element countlessly referred by sailing in the twilight zone. Now in total darkness, the car reaches a field of stars which splits open and the elevator enters a pitch black vertical shaft as sailing's narration ends the elevator, begins to the drop sequence. So... That's the ride. <laughs> that sounds sick. <laughs> I want to go on this ride. Oh, no, it's great. I just can't do the drop motion. <laughs> I will die. But that kind of gives you an idea. It's what their episodes and stories were like on the series. It was all very like sci-fi or psychological horror, thriller, whatever. So it's very similar to the attraction. So there you go. There was a reason for me talking about it. Don't come at me. No, that that was really <laughs> sick though. Like the whole the visuals of it, and then like the welcome to the hotel. People are missing. Um, i.e. dead. So <laughs> I think that's really sick. Yeah, see. So I guess we better go on to what we're actually talking about today, which is the Twilight Zone, the film or the movie. It's called Twilight mm. Zone, the movie. So it is a 1983 American science fiction horror anthology film produced by Steven Spielberg and John Landis based on Ron Serling's 59-64 television series of the same name which we've just been talking about. The film features four stories directed by Landis, Spielberg, Joe Dante and George Miller. So Landis's segment is an original story created for the film while the segments by Spielberg, Dante and Miller are remakes of episodes from the original series. So it was going to be like a four short stories in one film, I guess, if you want to look at it that way. Okay. So pretty famous names in there as well for directors. I think you would know, obviously, George Miller. <laughs> I mean, he did Mad Max, but my first thing would be like Happy Feet. <laughs> so... I love Happy Feet. <laughs> you went from Mad Max to Happy Feet. Sorry, I didn't know. Everyone else would be like Mad Max Abyss. And I'm like, Happy Feet. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. And then uh, obviously everyone knows who Steven Spielberg is. And then John Landis. Steven who? Steven, sorry. Who? <laughs> who? I've never heard of him. Don't know her. Don't know her. <laughs> um, but anyway, these are all very, very well known directors so before taking on the twilight zone landis was known for writing and directing the blues brothers and 
an American werewolf in London that were his babies. <laughs> movies. I don't know why I said babies. <laughs> Twilight Zone, the movie, featured four segments, and in the script for the first segment, which was called Time Out, character Bill Connor, who was played by actor Vic Morrow, is transported back in time and ends up in the Vietnam War. Um, if I can remember the story properly, it was something about how he's a bit of a awful person like i'm pretty sure he's like racist and like just basically a trash human being and he gets transported back to like nazi germany where they treat him as if he was jewish and then they he gets transported to like a a part of america in a time where the kkk were running rampant and then they treat him as if he was a black person and try and lynch him and then he gets transformed to vietnam during the war and he tries to then help these kids in the village escape the war or something like that. So it was basically trying to be like, oh, you're racist. <laughs> See how it feels. <laughs> so I, To be fair, that's a pretty good premise hmm. um, for a, a short piece. Because like, what better way to learn how other people feel than to actually be treated like them? Tee. And see that it's not fair. TT, yeah. So, I mean, I haven't seen it, so that's just based off what I've read. So if I'm wrong, nah, sorry. Okay, so the John Landis, he directed the first segment. He, he's a bit of a beast. He violated California's child labor laws by hiring seven-year-old Micah Din Lee and six-year-old Renee Shin Lee Chen without the required permits. The children were hired after Peter Wei T. Chen sorry, Renee's uncle, was approached by a colleague whose wife was a production secretary for the film. Chen first thought of his brother's six-year-old daughter, Renee, whose parents agreed to let her participate. He then called a Vietnamese colleague, Daniel Lee, who had a seven-year-old son named Micah, and Micah was an outgoing boy who enjoyed posing for pictures, so his parents thought he would be interested in being in a movie. Chen later testified that he was never informed that either of the children would be in proximity to a helicopter or explosives, which may <laughs> uh, hint at what happens. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, God. I hope this is not going in the direction that I think it is. But So, <laughs> so Lee and Chen uh... were being paid under the table to circumvent state law, which did not permit children to work at night. Landis opted not to seek a special waiver, either because he did not think that he would get permission for such a late hour or because he knew that he would not get approval to have young children in a scene with a large number of explosives. Casting agents were unaware that the children would be involved in the scene. Associate producer George Falsey Jr. told the children's parents not to tell any firefighters on the set that the children were part of the scene and hid them from a fire safety officer who also worked as a welfare worker. A fire safety officer was concerned that the blast would cause a crash, but he did not tell Landis of his concerns. What? What? Even Stephen, this right? Is so dangerous. Yeah. Like, it's not okay. Like, I understand you want to make a really cool movie, but this is this is the the furthest from okay it could possibly be. Honestly, so horrible. So, the filming location was Indian Dunes, a movie ranch in the Valencia neighborhood. I don't know what is now the city of Santa Clarita. Ah, Santa Clarita! In California. That was used throughout the 1980s in films and television shows. The location was within the 30-mile zone. Uh, Its wide open area permitted more pyrotechnic effects, and it was possible to shoot night scenes without city lights visible in the background. Have you ever seen Santa Clarita? I haven't. (laughs) (gasps) Oh! Okay, so everything you're describing about nightlights and all this open space, everything, it literally uh, is seen in Santa Clarita, like when they have to go out into the desert to do something shady (laughs) or all the rest of that stuff. Uh, So Indian Dunes with 600 acres also featured a wide topography of green hills, dry desert, dense woods and jungle-like riverbeds along the Santa Clara River which made it suitable to double for locations around the world, including Afghanistan, Brazil, and Vietnam. There Mm. you go. So, on this day, July 23rd, in the early hours of the morning, uh, they were filming a night scene. So the night scene called for Morrow's character to carry 
the two children out of a deserted village and across a shallow river while being pursued by American soldiers in a hovering helicopter. The helicopter was piloted by Vietnam War veteran Dorsey Wingo. It's a great name. <laughs> it's a great name. During the filming, I want to say Ringo, like the Beatles, but it's Wing, as in like wings, Wingo. Wingo. So now I feel like I'm saying Ringo <laughs> funny. Wing. <laughs> It's such an appropriate name, though, based Literally, on the fact that wings. what they do for a living is fly helicopters. Wings. <laughs> so he was he stationed his helicopter 25 feet, or that's 7.6 meters, from the ground while hovering near a large mortar effect, which is a device used to create movie special effects consisting of pressurized air or gas forced through a tube to propel material like dirt, glass, or whatever's. Uh, to create a bursting or splattering effect. So it was hovering a bit too close to that. Um, He then turned the aircraft 180 degrees to the left for the next camera shot, and the effect was detonated while the helicopter's tail rotor was still above it, causing the rotor to fail and detach from the tail. So the low-flying helicopter spun out of control, and at the same time, Morrow dropped Chen into the water. He was reaching out to grab her when the helicopter fell on top of him and the two children. Morrow and Lee were decapitated by the helicopter's main rotor blades, while Chen was crushed to death by the helicopter's right landing skid. All three died instantly. <laughs> I'm sorry to throw that on you. You look so traumatized. <laughs> It's the moment you said decapitated. Literally. It was not what I was expecting. No. Oh my god. <laughs> Awful. Absolutely horrendous. I I don't feel I don't feel comfortable at all. Oh no. <laughs> I'm gonna go take my tea. You're gonna take a sip of your tea. It's okay. It's okay. It is very traumatizing and I probably should have warned you. I'm a beast, I'm sorry. I mean, yeah, small disclaimer of they they died horrifically would have been great (laughs) well a lot of people know the story so i was so surprised that you didn't now maybe it's a good thing because then you got to see my genuine reaction of terror sorry (laughs) but tea right it's awful horrific accident but it doesn't get much better from here because people are beasts and we'll get into that so oh god okay so there was a trial obviously People died. So at the trial, the defense claimed that the explosions were detonated at the wrong time. Randall Robinson, an assistant cameraman on board... By the way, everyone in the helicopter survived. Some minor injuries or whatever, but they all survived. So the assistant cameraman on board the helicopter, he testified that production manager Dan Allingham told Wingo, that's too much, let's get out of here, when the explosions were detonated. But Landis, the director, shouted over the radio, get lower lower get get over so robinson said that wingo tried to leave the area but that we lost our control and regained it and then i could feel something let go and we began spinning around in circles stephen lidecker he was a camera operator on board testified that landis had earlier shrugged off warnings about the stunt with the comment we may lose the helicopter So Lidecker acknowledged that Landis might have been joking when he made the remark, but he said, I learned not to take anything the man said as a joke. It was his attitude. He didn't have time for suggestions from anybody. So he's low-key a beast, right? And (laughs) I mean, that's a nice way of putting it. You know, shrugging off a potential dangerous situation. With children involved. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Mm Mm-hmm. So in October 1984, the National Transportation Safety Board, also known as the NTSB, issued its report on the accident. The probable cause of the accident was the detonation of debris-laden high-temperature special effects explosions too near to a low-flying helicopter, leading to foreign object damage to one rotor blade. And this is such a long sentence. And (laughs) delamination due to heat to the other rotor blade, the separation of the helicopter's tail rotor assembly and the uncontrolled descent of the helicopter. Basically, the helicopter was in a bad place and it all they yeah, it all went wrong, basically. I don't know. <laughs> so 
The proximity of the helicopter to the special effects explosion was due to the failure to establish direct communications and coordination between the pilot, who was in command of the helicopter operation, and the film director, who was in charge of the filming operation. They're very different things. And I think the director should have kept his nose out of the helicopter operation and maybe this would not have happened. I don't know. Maybe. I mean, if he didn't know anything about it, he should have just... Shh. <laughs> and let people do their job. You know what's actually the, the do, do their job. Mm. It's like, you're not qualified, but you're going to yell out orders anyway. It's like, all right, T. Cool. This is... This is- Stupid. Naturally. The Federal Aviation Administration, the FAA, had just instituted regulations the previous March to define how aircraft were to be regulated during film and television productions. The new regulations, however, only covered fixed wing aircraft and not helicopters. Because, of course mm. not. As a result of the fatal accident, the NTSB recommended that the terms be extended to apply to all types of aircraft. Because aircraft are aircraft. <laughs> I mean, surely if it's up in the air flying with motors and other bits and pieces that are similar to planes, it should all just be classes. Like, it should be under the same thing, basically, for the safety, for the sake of safety, sorry. TT. That's it. So in response, the FAA amended the regulation to clarify and emphasize that the helicopter low-level movie-making operations do require a certificate of waiverer. I guess they just mean they need permission to fly low. Mm-hmm. Uh, this language was officially incorporated in uh, 1986. But before then, I guess they could just do whatever they wanted. It's pretty awful. Oh my God. Um, the accident led to civil and criminal action against the filmmakers, which lasted nearly a decade. Because law and courts, we know, right? <laughs> Takes years. Oh. Lee's father, Daniel Lee, testified that he heard Landis instructing the helicopter to fly lower. All four parents testified that they were never told that they would be that there would be helicopters or explosions on set. And they had been reassured that there would be no danger, only noise. Lee, who had survived the Vietnam War, bless, and immigrated with his wife to the US, was horrified when the explosions began on the Vietnamese village set, bringing back memories of the war. So, rude and apparently completely soulless. (laughs) It's like the level of PTSD that he must be suffering, that he must have suffered from the war, and then it got relived again, and then obviously PTSD from his his kid dying. Like, what? So insensitive. I feel so. It's really bad. I feel so bad for him. Mm. Hope he's okay. <laughs> so Landis, who is our director, Falsy Wingo, and production manager Allingham, and explosive specialist Paul Stewart were tried, but then they were acquitted on charges of manslaughter in a nine-month trial in 1986 and 1987. In the course of cross-examination, Wingo expressed his regret that Morrow had not looked up at the helicopter as he claimed he had instructed him to do, stating when questioned that Morrow had, quote, over five seconds between the time that the sound of the helicopter changed and that impact. But later clarifying that he was not attempting to place blame, but you know what, it sure does sound like it. I was going to say you're placing blame on a dead guy. (laughs) Literally. So (laughs) such a coward move. Own the fact that you made a mistake you know yeah i mean the manslaughter is like here to stay so (laughs) literally wingo's comments were roundly ridiculed including by the prosecutor a deputy district attorney at the time who during cross-examination had responded to wingo's suggestion that morrow uh, evade the helicopter by questioning how exactly wingo expected him to have done so observing that Morrow was carrying the two youngsters in his arms while standing almost knee-deep in water as the helicopter, which had been hovering at 24 feet, spun toward him and calling the testimony quite amazing and questioning how Wingo could possibly have thought that Vic Morrow could have done anything to escape the helicopter under those circumstances and conditions. Uh, This is all, quote, It's a classic example of a defence. They're blaming the parents, they're blaming the fire safety officers, they're out here blaming everyone. Now they're blaming the dead man. It's incredible. (laughs) Morrow's... Uh, Yeah, yeah. incredible in that sense of like, I can't believe you think that this is okay. Um, Morrow's family settled within a year. The children's families collected supposedly, 
not confirmed, millions of dollars from several civil lawsuits. As a result of the accident, second assistant director Andy House had his name removed from the credits of The Twilight Zone, the movie, and replaced with the pseudonym Alan Smithy. It was the first time that a director was charged due to a fatality on a set, and the trial was described as long, controversial, and bitterly divisive. But, like... Mm. So, what happened to Landis, then? Well, basically, I couldn't get the full T. One place I read that he was charged, but then basically acquitted nearly straight away for manslaughter. I don't think he served time, and I'm pretty sure he just went on. He went on to direct other stuff, and he went on to keep working, so... Oh, yes. Rich people problems. <laughs> should have known. That's really disappointing. And if anything, that's so infuriating. Because if it wasn't for his instructions, then those people wouldn't have died. And then this whole trial wouldn't have happened in the first place. Yeah. It was... It's etch. I could go into a whole piece about how Hollywood lets people, horrible people, continue to have a career. But let's... <laughs> That's for I mean, another let's hope time. This year, that that's not the case. <laughs> that's for another time. So, um, the Screen Actors Guild, also known as SAG, spokesman Mark Locker said at the conclusion of the trial, this is in quote, uh, the entire ordeal has shaken the industry in its bottom. Uh, no. Is he, is he British by any chance? I don't Possibly, know. Possibly. I don't know. But I read that and I was like, that's a weird way of putting it, but. It's a very British thing to say. <laughs> I understand what he's trying to say, but it just makes me laugh. So sorry, it's horrible, but like <laughs> shaken to its core might have been a better way of putting it. But that would have definitely been better. That's what exactly what I thought you were going to yeah. say until you said bottom. bottom, and I was like, oh, that's, that's not a word though. <laughs> so Warner Brothers set up dedicated safety committees to establish acceptable standards. For every aspect of filmmaking, from gunfire to fixed-wing aircraft to smoke and pyrotechnics. The standards are regularly issued as safety bulletins and published as the Injury and Illness Prevention Program, a safety manual for television and feature production. That's what the IIPP manual... (laughs) (laughs) It's called uh, double I double P, (laughs) IIPP. Oh my god, bless you. So So cute. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the manual is a general outline of safe work practices to be used as a guideline for productions to provide a safe work environment, and it's distributed to all studio employees. The Directors Guild of America's Safety Committee began publishing regular safety bulletins for its members and established a telephone hotline to enable directors to get quick answers for safety questions. The Guild also began to discipline its members for violations of its safety procedures on set, which it had not done prior to the crash. The SAG introduced a 24-hour hotline and safety team for its members and encouraged members to use the right of refusal guaranteed in contracts if they believe a scene is unsafe. So they were kind of encouraging actors to be like, if I feel like this is very unsafe, then I have the right to say I don't want to do this and I want you to assure me that this is not going to kill me basically like i mean t yeah that's that's kind of something that should have been done in the first place but obviously morrow didn't know that that was an option because it wasn't an option in mm, the beginning yeah at least as far as he know as as far as we all know yes so f- filming accidents fell by 69.6 percent between 1982 and 1986 due to all these changes and these safety committees and all this stuff happening. Although there were still six deaths on set during those four years. I can't tell you what they are because I didn't look at that. (laughs) But they happened. Uh, So, Landis spoke out about the accident in a 1996 interview. I think you're going to love this quote from him. There was absolutely no good aspect about, about this whole story. The tragedy, which I think about every day, had an enormous impact on my career, from which I may possibly never recover. Oh, boo-hoo, I'm sorry. <laughs> Would you like some tissues? That's so <laughs> selfish. He's such an asshole. I can't say the word that I want to yes, use. I know. 
but jesus what like okay you're gonna turn this whole thing and make it sound like your entire life has been totally ruined three people died Mm. their families are traumatized by the whole experience other people that you worked with who were getting blamed for this when it was your fault are getting sentenced to however much time doing something for manslaughter and you are turning around and saying oh i'm so traumatized oh oh my god i'm sorry but when you said um i'll never recover from this i heard oh the tiger king line in my head (laughs) i'll never recover what was it i'll never financially recover from this (laughs) something like that that's just the stupidest thing it's it's really what a piece of shit well like the tea is i had a quick look at his filmography after reading this and like it wasn't like he could never work ever again. I mean, sure, he did stuff that maybe I've never heard of and maybe it wasn't successful, but he still got work. He was still able to live with an income, whether it may not have been the millions he was expecting. But, like, get over yourself. Like, you're lucky you're not in prison, in my point of view. I don't know. Maybe I'm a bit harsh, but, you know. I mean, personally, I would prefer if he was in prison, <laughs> if he was still in prison. Um, and if if he really thinks that his his career did not recover from this then it should it should be the case where like he actually gets shown the hard way how his career would never recover from this every time he goes to like propose an idea for something yeah no sorry just <laughs> no. not you directing no and every time he's like oh um i could do this job i could do this film ah we already hired someone like <laughs> an hour ago sorry about that <laughs> Or just like someone outright going, no, you let three people di- three people die on your set, no. Yeah, I mean the door, there it is. Go make friends with it. <laughs> but like, I think I read somewhere that he's actually in in talks or already in the like beginnings of making a remake of an American Werewolf in London. Yeah, so I mean, your career can't be that dead if you're in in talks of remaking. <laughs> A film that's Your probably going to be wildly successful because the original was, like, you know, a very successful horror film. But, you know. I mean, I'm not going to be watching this <laughs> So I'll quickly finish this off because I only have a little bit left, which is actually about the other filmmakers involved in this film. Because, remember, it wasn't just his film. Everyone else had to film their pieces. Oh, by the way, they did release the film. I don't know if I'm going to mention that, but they did release it. <laughs> and okay. it was... It was okay. It didn't do what they were expecting, oh. obviously. Maybe because like the whole thing got soured by what happened. Yeah, I think some like, people uh, went just to be, be curious as to like, what's in this movie? Like he, everyone's in it, I believe. I think, obviously, they finished it. His parts, mm-hmm. anyway. So filmmaker Steven Spielberg, who was a co-producer on the film, and he also directed a part of the film. Uh, he broke off his friendship with Landis following the accident well done spielberg <laughs> he we said love steven spielberg oh he's a ledge and at the moment he's not problematic so let's just let's hope it stays that no, way don't say that at the moment he's not problematic i'm gonna touch all the way. oh my gosh <laughs> tap everything um tap everything <laughs> so this is a quote from spielberg about the crash the crash made me grow a little and left everyone who worked on the movie sick to the center of our souls he added no movie is worth dying for i think people are standing up much more now than ever before to to producers and directors who ask too much if someone isn't safe it's the right and responsibility of every actor or crew member to yell cut yes that is honestly so Co-director George Miller, who was also directing another part of the film, was so repulsed by the entire scenario, he abandoned post-production of his segment, leaving Joe Dante, who was the other director, to supervise the editing of his section. (laughs) I mean, mean, again, George Miller, well done. (laughs) Collapse to George Miller. We can't blame him. (laughs) Honestly, and that's all the information I have on this day. I'm sorry for the trauma. I'm sorry. <laughs> to be fair, it's not your fault. I blame all of this on Landis. <laughs> well, like, uh, honestly, it's just, 
I could go on, but I won't because I'll rant about how there's apparently no consequences for white men in Hollywood. I mean, some. There are some. Like, look, Harvey Weinstein. Okay, great. That's <laughs> like... It just took so long, but at least something's happening. Yeah. When I say it took so long, I mean that like, I wish that it had happened sooner. Mm. Yeah, it went on um, for too long. Yeah. yeah. Like, what an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I don't know if you remember like sorry this is about like a really quick tangent on Weinstein but do you remember um, when he was appearing for court one time and he had a Zimmer frame with him and they were like oh look he's so fragile and I was like well that doesn't stop him from assaulting people so (laughs) and it doesn't like erase what he's done in the past like yeah oh he's old let him off just to slap on the back of the wrist (laughs) literally and like Oh, I mean, yeah, I just don't... It didn't sit well with me that Landis basically was like, feel sorry for me. And it's like, no, I have nothing for you. No sympathy mm-hmm. at all for you because you sound like a dick on set. You sound like you... A dick in real yeah. life. <laughs> <laughs> literally. And like, what, you want me to feel sorry for you when people literally no. died under your... Kids died under your care. Like... And not just like... It was a, a horrific death. Mm. It wasn't just like, you know, maybe they passed out from suffocation. No, no, no. Decapitated, crushed to death. That's unacceptable. Mm. And you're going to turn around and say, I'm so sad. This is going to ruin my career. Well, yeah, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I'll never financially recover from this. <laughs> anyway, that's, um, so that's everything. Now you know the horrific... It's probably one of the worst on-set accidents. There's quite a few. Obviously, we had the recent one with uh, the Alec Baldwin's film. Yeah. Which is also... I can't believe something like that can happen today with all the standards and the expectations and protocols and all this stuff. But obviously, no one followed them. Like, <laughs> Yeah, of course. I, like, I, I don't remember the full details of it, but I know that he had a lot of remorse about the whole situation. Mm. Um, but aside from that, I don't remember because like it was only last year, wasn't it? Yeah, I think it was only lo- like last year or the, even the year before. I don't know. Time is a weird thing for me these last three years. <laughs> like, yeah, <laughs> the fact that we don't remember that. What do you think was twenty twenty one? Did anything happen in twenty twenty one? Like I got nothing. Nothing good. I think I remember going to sleep uh, on December thirty first, twenty twenty, and waking up and being like, "Oh, it's twenty twenty two. Nice." So nice. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's is a risk in the film industry because, like, there are so many productions going on at once, all run by different people, and they try to put in policies and protocols and all the stuff to prevent bad stuff from happening. But because it's so hard to enforce and to make sure people are actually doing it, stuff just happens that shouldn't, and people get away with yeah. stuff. And it's like, yeah, which I think is why this the recent accident happened is because obviously nothing you know something wasn't being followed or done properly and they can't really enforce it like what more can they do if people are just going to not do what they're supposed to do i guess i don't know Should i, I don't know to prosecute properly <laughs> that's an idea it, it makes me happy that it like just for a brief second it makes me happy that i don't act anymore because <laughs> like getting her on stage and on set was very common um especially if you're like doing something over and over again like for certain fight scenes for example that we used to do on stage um yes it can be choreo not it can be it it is choreographed but then if you're like directed to really get into it and then someone ends up with a black eye then you know tea i mean it's nothing in comparison to everything else but you know it just makes me happy that i no longer do it but i still want to do it (laughs) (laughs) I mean like accidents do happen like obviously the Harrison Ford piece when he I think it was Star Wars he got his leg crushed or something in a door do you not know about this piece? no it happened I think the most I can't remember if it's Star Wars or the new Indiana Jones but it was only a few years ago and I think his leg got stuck in a door or something one of those yeah and he had to like I think it was broken or something it was pretty bad it's like accidents happen, but like, yeah, some of them are very preventable. And I think, yeah. you know, yeah, like don't yell, go lower, for example. Yeah. But anyways, 
have a bit of a just not gonna throw it. too much shade oh, we have been <laughs> sassy about it but like i don't care because it's true beast <laughs> <laughs> there's a it just also frustrates me about this whole mentality that directors are sort of like i you know i did my film degree and a lot of people i met were very lovely and, you know, nerdy like me, film nerdy, and, you know, that's great. And then there were some people I met who were very, like, they have an attitude. And they was like, well, I'm going to be a director, and I'm going to be amazing. And it's like, calm your farm. Like, <laughs> I mean, saying that, have you seen any of their works recently? Of these pieces? Mm-hmm. Of, of my pieces or your pieces? <laughs> your pieces, of my pieces. My pieces. <laughs> Well, there you go. Yeah. Um, so I was like, are you thing. talking about oh, the four okay. directors we were talking about? Because I'm like, yeah, of course. No. I've seen everything Spielberg's made. Like, what are you talking <laughs> But no, but I just don't like this mentality. It's also kind of encouraged in the industry of, like, the director's god and, like, whatever the director says goes. And they give them permission to be dicks and to be abusive, basically. Like, <clears throat> David O. Russell, like you know, not going into that tea about the fact that they're letting him make another film even though he basically abused everyone on set, but you know, whatever. But like the fact that, (laughs) just flying past that, the fact that it's almost encouraged because they don't get penalised or punished for it. And it's like, you're not special, sweetie. Like, there'll be tons of people out there who haven't got the chance to become the big, big shot director that you are, and they're probably Mm -hmm. nearly ten times better than you. So like, get off your pedestal you're not that special am i just salty <laughs> no i think like i 100% agree with you because just like you're saying there's people with these uh, horrific um attitudes that they have got going on like i'm the best director since i was gonna say since sliced bread i was like sliced bread was never a director <laughs> <laughs> sliced bread was the best director ever <laughs> i loved their work it was so <laughs> inspiring <laughs> and when they worked with butter oh what a great combination <laughs> oh god okay <laughs> okay what i was gonna say before i messed up <laughs> people say that they're the best directors in spielberg for example like i just i just don't believe in any of that but i think that they should they should truly be held accountable for their actions like you know they have unions and whatnot um for every type of uh, thing that happens in the film industry which is fantastic um and you know there's a um, equity for example for actors at least over here in the uk it should it should be implemented that if your director is going to be a dick and you have evidence and you have and, and there's other people that will also say or and or other people that will also say they were a dick to me too then surely let this work finish but then dude you're not allowed to direct for the next like five years or something because you're an asshole Hmm. so i think people should directors who are actively pieces of 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 trash to people i was gonna say other words (laughs) but anyways uh, (laughs) like they should truly be penalized for their actions it's like well if you're gonna act like this you're not allowed to direct for a certain amount of time and they need to be able to suffer that consequence. Other people need to know that as well. So that if they decide, oh, I want to do um, a film and I had an idea that I want X, Y, and Z to direct it, then someone could chime in and go, oh, but they're not allowed to direct for another three years because <laughs> they broke a, a rule mm. or whatever. Then cool, fine. But people need to learn from their mistakes and they can't do this. And I don't like when people turn around and say, oh, it's just like snowflake mentality. It's like everyone's so sensitive. No, if you're actively abusing people on set and, and bringing them down and calling them worthless or that you're going to fire them if they breathe wrong, then go to hell. It's as simple as this that. This is the thing. Everyone being like, oh, they're so snowflakey. Oh, they're just being wimps. It's like, well, how would you feel if this happened to you? You would be the first to complain. Mm-hmm. You'd be out there yeah, being exactly. like, this is bullshit, this is horrible, this is unfair. But yeah, it's okay if it happens to other people. Like, I don't understand those yeah. kinds of people. Because they're the kind of people who haven't worked in retail or hospitality. And they think mm-hmm. that we're all just whinges for the people who have worked mm-hmm. in it. And it's like, no, you just haven't experienced, like, the worst parts of humanity. <laughs> yeah, it's true. <laughs> in a, in a like, the, ones that, the ones that call us snowflakes 
are the ones that are just like oh back in my day i would have just sucked it up no like you would have wanted to stand up for yourself and that's exactly what we're doing fair enough there are people in our generation and the generation below us that are very snowflakey i've seen it and i want to punch them in the face but the ones that are like actually you're doing wrong this is wrong and you need to be called out on it Mm. like they're not snowflakes they're basically standing up for themselves and standing up for other people so and it's like when when you when it's like bullying in school people are always like you Mm -hmm. know stop it and you know stand up to bullies but when you become adults apparently it's fine to bully other people yeah (laughs) like since when did that happen (laughs) okay so that was the stunning history of today i'm sorry it was a bit upsetting it's very distressing so i do apologize for not giving fair warning sorry but i hope you learned something today even if it was not to support certain directors (laughs) (laughs) i'm not trying to start a council culture thing here but you know i just think if you're going to i don't know I don't know. Just recognize just, when directors are doing wrong and just don't follow their work. If you're afterwards. not going to support certain people for other reasons, then I don't think you should be supporting, you know, mm-hmm. bad, nasty, horrible people. But maybe I'm just a, maybe I'm the snowflake in this situation. Who knows? Maybe I'm too sensitive. Oh, bless you. <laughs> Honestly. Anyway, um, that's it for this episode uh if you haven't already you can follow us on the insta i post and trust me i'm a young person who knows how to social media um trust me i'm a young person <laughs> i know what instagram it's like the steve buscemi meme have you seen that steve buscemi meme it's like um how's it going fellow young people <laughs> with the skateboard and everything yes that's me um the follow us because I post photos from these episodes. So if you want some visual context, uh, that's where you can find it. And I also ask what topic you would like to hear next. So if you want to have a say, um, go and follow us. I may ask for the next episode what people want to hear. Maybe, maybe, mm-hmm. maybe not. I don't know. We'll see how I feel. <laughs> anyway, I've been Tess. And I've been Steph. And we've been stunning. thanks for listening I'm sorry if I traumatised you go and talk to your therapist it'll be okay I agree (laughs) I'll be booking an appointment after this okay let's go do that okay bye bye